welcome to the first episode of the Stories in My Head. I am your podcast host, Sarah L. Armstrong. The name of this weekly podcast comes from a quote from author Paula Hawkins. She said, stay faithful to the stories in your head. And that's what I've worked on doing as a writer. It's it's a variation on the theme of write what you know. It's it's write about what you feel, write about the places your imagination takes you. I consider myself really an ordinary person, but I have been privileged to live a fairly extraordinary life. I joined the Peace Corps when I graduated from college. I went to Uganda in East Africa where I got married and my children were born. And I lived there for six years under the brutal reign of the dictator Idi Amin. And we all finally escaped. I endured being in the sandwich generation, raising children and caring for my elderly parents by myself. I was an elected public official. I was a mayor of a small town in Alabama. I spent 15 years working in corporate America. I went to seminary when I was in my 50s, and I've survived widowhood twice. If you want to know some more about me, go to my website, sarmstrong.biz, B-I-Z, and read the About section. Also, I've written a book about my time in Uganda and the time under Idi Amin in a book called The Shattered Pearl. It's available on Amazon, and I encourage you to go check it out, The Shattered Pearl. I'm sure you'll enjoy it. So, my fiction writing has been influenced by all of these real-life transitions, struggle, resilience, joy, love, loss, and survival, mixed with adventure, mystery, and intrigue, and they are threaded throughout all of my stories. Also, as an African-American woman, that experience also is reflected in what I write in my fiction stories. Our first offering is a suspense story entitled Adinkra. Cheryl Davidson is the 50-something black female governor of a large state. Aaron, her husband, a former FBI agent, feels left out of her busy life. Their son, Derek, tries to repair the rift, but he's not having much luck. The most pressing issue facing Cheryl Davidson is whether or not to approve the parole of a convicted murderer. 25 years ago, this young man killed an unscrupulous white doctor. He's up for parole and the inmate is black. The controversy surrounding the case has not lessened over time, so tension is high. And Cheryl suddenly finds notes containing West African Adinkra symbols, and they're left in places that are only accessible to her family and inner circle. There are hidden agendas of rage and revenge, 
and even her husband is not above suspicion. So let us begin the stories in my head. Episode 1 of Adinkra. Cloth squares, each with a carefully drawn symbol, lay flat on the table. The Sangoma put on latex gloves and gently selected one square. The envelopes were prepared and the messages computer printed. The squares of linen fabric and the messages were placed in the envelopes. The plan was flawless. Five symbols five letters, strategically placed. Clues cleverly disguised, but too apparent to be missed. The weapon for the final act of liberation was ready. The years of waiting were over and the plan could now be executed. Some would not understand, but in the hindsight of history, the wisdom of this murder would be clear. Not a murder, really. It was a sacrifice for the greater good. Not everyone had a spiritual connection like the Sangoma, who was a practitioner of divination, healing, and counseling selected by the ancestors. Long hours of prayer and meditation opened the mind to the truth of what had to be done. The Sangoma would put in motion the events that would finally see that justice was done. It had begun. Cheryl Davidson had been up for several hours after a fitful night's sleep. Sleep didn't come easily these days. She sat at the antique desk poring over memos and agendas trying to get a handle on the day ahead. No matter how hard she tried to focus, her eyes and thoughts drifted to the door leading to the adjoining study now transformed into a bedroom suite. She wondered how Aaron had slept. Did he toss and turn, too? Was he lying on his side, snoring softly with his arms folded across his chest? She missed waking up next to him. She missed talking over the events of the day as they lay in bed at night. She missed Aaron. The wall had begun to build between them during the campaign. As the first black woman to make a serious bid for governor, she had experienced intense pressure. Media surrounded her everywhere she went. Interviews, debates, rallies, strategy sessions, and staff meetings all blurred together in a whirlwind of activity. Aaron had supported Cheryl running for office. 
They had examined all the pros and cons and decided that she had to make the attempt. Their son was grown and on his own. Her campaign war chest was amply filled, and she had the chance to make history. With her brutal schedule, the only time they had alone was in bed at night when they were both too exhausted to do much more than sleep. The campaign had a life of its own and had taken over their lives in the process. After the victory celebration on election night, Cheryl and Aaron made love for the first time in weeks. They both promised to find more time for each other. However, the pressure of her new position soon made that promise impossible to keep. They used the governor's mansion for official functions, but they lived in a spacious suburban home purchased some years earlier. It sat on half an acre of land where all the necessary security options had been added after the election. The interviews, the meetings, the legislative caucuses, choosing a personal staff, all of that consumed Cheryl. After two months of Cheryl coming to bed at midnight, rising at five, and often receiving phone calls in the middle of the night, they decided that separate adjoining bedrooms was the best answer. It was to be only a temporary solution until things calmed down, but it had been more than a year. Aaron's training in military intelligence had morphed into a consulting firm that kept him busy, so they only saw each other in the evening after dinner or if there was a state function to attend as a couple. In the early months, the adjoining door would open often and one of them would slip into the other's bed for a moment of passion and closeness but the door had remained closed for the past three months. Then, just when Cheryl got things under control and organized, Calvin McDonald and Mafume Nkozi appeared, and nothing had been the same since. Rising from her desk, Cheryl stretched, yawned, and headed for the shower. Tiring years ago of the endless round of chemical relaxers, perms, and hair rollers, Cheryl wore her hair in a neat-shaped afro. She let the gray hairs show through, proud of the maturity and years of struggle they represented. Her body wasn't bad for a woman approaching 60. She watched her diet but did not deny herself the things she enjoyed. According to most charts, she was 30 pounds overweight, but it was a proven fact that a little extra weight helped prevent osteoporosis. That was as good a rationalization as any. The warm water relaxed and comforted. Cheryl mentally ran through what she had in front of her that day. She'd start off with a staff meeting to discuss the McDonald-Chesterton matter, then coffee with the Society for the Preservation of Our Heritage, concerned about a proposed freeway extension that would destroy a house purported to be the birthplace of a long-dead, little-known poet with a small but vocal following. That would take about an hour. 
a session with both leaders of the houses of legislature and an afternoon of signing various kinds of paperwork would round out the day. That evening, she and Aaron would attend a state dinner for the visiting prime minister of Indonesia. Maybe after dinner, she and Aaron could talk. Dressed and ready, Cheryl took one final look at herself in the full-length mirror. The charcoal gray suit was one of her favorites. She picked up her briefcase, placed her reading glasses in their case, and thrust it into her suit coat pocket. That was when she found the letter. The envelope was beige and textured as if tiny pieces of fiber or wood pulp were woven into the paper. It was sealed but not addressed. Where had this come from? All mail was x-rayed open and tested before it got to Cheryl's desk. It was probably just a note from Aaron. Curiosity overcame paranoia, so Cheryl slit open the envelope. The folded paper inside was of the same texture and color as the envelope. When Cheryl unfolded the paper, something floated out and drifted to the floor. It was a piece of cloth about four inches square with a mottled brown background. In the center was a drawing or symbol that resembled the concentric circles of a target. On the note was the same symbol with a message in calligraphy-style letters. It read, Adinkaheni, symbol of greatness, charisma, and leadership. We trust you to lead with courage. Cheryl frowned. What did it mean? Maybe Cheryl crossed the room to the door that separated her from her husband and gently knocked. No answer. Aaron, she called. No answer. She twisted the knob and to her surprise, the door opened to reveal an empty, unmade bed and an equally empty room. There were no sounds coming from the bathroom and the desk where Aaron always kept his briefcase was empty. Where would he have gone so early? Suddenly aware of the time, Cheryl stuffed the mysterious envelope and its contents back into her pocket and returned to her room. She heard the doorbell ring and called out, Come on in. I'll be ready in a minute, Marcia. Good morning, Governor, a bright voice replied. I'll take your briefcase out to the car. Take your time. After a last check in the mirror and a quick inventory of the contents of her purse to make sure she had everything, Cheryl hurried from her bedroom and opened the front door. The state trooper on guard greeted her with a smile and escorted her to the limousine waiting in the driveway. Cheryl smiled as she slid into the back seat and looked into the bright blue eyes of Marcia Conrad, her executive assistant. Marcia had worked for Cheryl's predecessor and had dutifully proffered her resignation on the first day of the new administration. 
She included with her letter a detailed description of the filing system, the phone protocol, financial guidelines, and general office operating instructions. Marcia Conrad lived alone with her cat, Hannah, in a remodeled farmhouse on several acres in a nearby rural community. She had no siblings, no children. She kept her political affiliations to herself and had served faithfully in various capacities under administration from both political parties. Cheryl's decision to keep her had paid off royally. She ran the governor's office with efficiency, compassion, and complete loyalty. She wore her silver hair in a mid-length, softly styled curl and seemed to have an endless wardrobe of business suits and matching blouses. Every morning, Marcia briefed Cheryl on the way to work or to the airport or to her first meeting as to her schedule for the day and any overnight developments of importance. Good morning, Marcia. What's on the agenda today that I don't already know about? Cheryl feigned interest in Martha's reply, but her thoughts were filled with the mysterious note in her pocket. The governor's office was surprisingly bright and warm. The rosewood furnishings were not dark or somber as might be expected. They were simple with just the right amount of carved detail. The oriental carpet under the desk was a pleasing mixture of red, gray, and brown. Windows on two sides of the office provided great natural light. Cheryl accented the walls with paintings by local artists and a few personal favorites. A boardroom and library were down the hall to the left of the office. Cheryl entered the boardroom about 20 minutes later before the staff meeting. Compared to the other offices, her staff was small but highly effective and very dedicated. Besides Marcia, there was Elena Machado, head of research, and Renita Dawson, chief protocol and public relations officer, whom she would also see later in the evening. Cheryl opened the thick file in front of her and reviewed the already familiar faces and facts of the McDonald case. Forty-seven years ago, Dr. Gregory Chesterton opened several public health clinics. The patients were mostly African-American, but all of them were poor and desperate for health care. Dr. Chesterton's prices were unusually low. He accepted government insurance and sold his own health plan at a low premium. Chesterton was met with skepticism, however, all investigations showed he was on the level. Over the next two decades, Chesterton received humanitarian awards, and he continued to operate and make millions of dollars in fees, co-pays, premiums, and grants. When a new state director of public health was appointed and noted that the hospitals in the county served by Chesterton 
had unusually high mortality rates, an investigation was begun. It wasn't surprising that those underserved communities had higher death rates. It was the type of death threats that caught the eye. Apparently untreated infections, influenza, whooping cough, and dehydration. The results of this new investigation were stunning. Dr. Chesterton was a fraud. His clinics were dispensing drugs from unapproved manufacturers all over the world. Some of the medications were diluted or expired. Some of the staff had forged credentials and there was an extensive history of bribery of inspectors and other government officials. One of the victims was Geneva McDonald, age 12, sister of 18-year-old Calvin McDonald, who was her legal guardian. Geneva developed a serious respiratory infection, so Calvin took her to the Chesterton Clinic, where she was treated with antibiotics well beyond their expiration date. She developed pneumonia and died a few days later. The day that Chesterton's trial began, Calvin moved through the crowd until he was close enough to fire four bullets into the doctor's chest. Calvin didn't try to run. He just dropped the gun, raised his hands, and was arrested. He bled, pled guilty and was sentenced to life in prison with a possibility of parole after 25 years. His 25-year parole hearing was next month. The Calvin McDonald case became news on a national scale, mostly due to his lawyer, Mafume Nkosi. When Elena, Renita, and Marsha arrived, Cheryl said, well, let's get started. Elena, please review the legalities involved. Elena Machado cleared her throat and began to speak in her husky voice. The parole board makes the initial recommendation to grant or deny parole, but all recommendations must be signed by the governor. A prisoner can appeal a gubernatorial veto or a denial of parole to the state Supreme Court, but successful appeals are rare, she stated. Tucking her shoulder-length auburn hair behind her right ear, she continued. Under the new state law, the parole board can recommend parole, deny parole, recommend commutation of sentence, or recommend a full pardon. Pardons or commutations are also rare. Whatever they decide, you, Governor, have the power to override their decision. The Governor's approval of a parole decision is considered automatic, since Governors are usually not familiar with the history of the crime. Not so in this case. The parole board is deadlocked and has passed the decision to you. As she spoke, Cheryl inwardly smiled her approval. Elena was an intern when Cheryl served in the state legislature. She was always thorough, precise, could compete 
with anyone and complete even compact tasks very quickly. And she spoke five languages fluently. How's public opinion running? Cheryl queried. We have the potential here for a disaster or, or some great publicity, Renita replied. There's the law and order group that says murder is murder. McDonald should die in jail because he killed an unarmed man in cold blood and probably would have been executed if the state had the death penalty. The only reason he got the possibility of parole was that Chesterton was such a bad guy. She continued, On the other side are those who say he's done his time and Chesterton deserved what he got. And more. Renita paused and looked directly at Cheryl as she added, Then there are the gender and racial pieces. Cheryl rose from her chair and began to pace. Yes, if I let him go, I might be perceived as a weak woman who doesn't have the resolve to enforce the law. And since McDonald is black and the victim, no matter how despicable, is white, if I let him go, it may mean that I'm doing a version of gubernatorial jury nullification. She seemed to be thinking out loud rather than addressing the meeting. And then there is a consideration of what is right, just, and fair. Isn't that my real responsibility? Elena broke an uncomfortable silence, asking hesitantly, Governor, Governor Davidson, don't you know Mr. Incozi personally, I mean? Yes, we went to college together and have worked together a few times. Elena continued, Do you think you could negotiate a compromise? I, I, I don't know if that would work, but it would be worth a try. I don't know, Elena. I'm meeting with him a, a week from Monday. Cheryl began to gather files and said, Renita, do a press release about my meeting with Mafume. Emphasize that we're ready to find a workable, just, compassionate solution. Elena, gather and analyze nationwide statistics on pardons commutations, and vetoes of parole during appeals, she continued. I'll have it for you tomorrow afternoon, Governor. The remainder of the morning was spent in meetings and returning phone calls. There were proclamations and letters to sign stacks of files and briefs across Cheryl's desk, and by lunchtime she felt a real sense of accomplishment. The fast pace of the day took her mind off the McDonald case, and when Marcia informed her that her lunch was on the table in the library, Cheryl realized she hadn't eaten anything all day. The lobster bisque and chicken Caesar salad looked delicious. Cheryl reached for the crisp white linen napkins, and as she unfolded it, a letter fell into her lap. It was identical to the one she found in her suit pocket that morning. Cheryl felt a twinge of alarm as she opened the flap. 
Inside was a piece of cloth and another symbol. The symbol was a goose-like bird looking back over its tail. The note read, Sankofa, symbol of wisdom in learning from the past and in building the future. We know you remember the ancestors. Cheryl moved toward the door to call Martha, but hesitated. She sat down again and wondered who was sending these messages and why. What did it all mean? Aaron. She would talk to Aaron before she did anything. Hello, and called him. I await your instructions, Sangoma. You have done well. Do you remember the next steps? Yes, Sangoma, I remember. I will not fail. Repeat the instructions and quote them. I will prove my loyalty and readiness to serve by delivering the sacred messages. They are in the hiding place we agreed on. I only open that drawer on the days of delivery. The message will be placed in the identified locations. No one must see me. No one must suspect. Discovery is not an option. I am ready to serve, and I will not fail. Akhilin and Kotam. I will call again in three days at the same time with further instruction. Be well and stay strong. Yes, Sangoma. All of the planning was paying off. The Sangoma was pleased, but not overconfident. There was a long way to go. It had taken months to identify in Kotim. Sangoma followed, observed, researched, assessed for several months, and then acted. Sangoma chose a perfect night to strike. After using a little electronic magic to gain entry to the garage of the isolated home, Sangoma crouched in the darkness and waited. Nkoma arrived at the usual time, opened and closed the garage door, and prepared to exit the car. As soon as the prey slid out of the car, Sangona crept up behind, covering Nkotam's nose with a chloroform-soaked cloth. Wearing latex gloves, Sangoma moved Nkotam into the house and began preparations. Sangoma waited patiently for the chloroform to dissipate and then administered the hypodermic before full consciousness was regained. The drug was a modified version of scopolamine, which makes subjects compliant and highly susceptible to suggestion. Sangoma had rehearsed the words hundreds of times. Open your mouth. 
open your eyes. I have instructions. And Kotam's eyes open, glazed and staring. Sangoma stood behind Nkoma with a covered face and spoke with a muffled voice. Can you hear me? Yes, I hear you. Sangoma held out a medallion and began to move it back and forth. Follow the medallion with your eyes and hear only the sound of my voice. Call me Sangoma, and I will call you Inkotim. It means you are my servant. Do you understand? Yes, Sangoma, I understand. When I call you Inkotim, you will hear nothing else but my voice. If I don't say Inkotim, when you hear my voice, it will mean nothing to you. Whenever you are at home, you will answer your phone whenever it rings. Always answer my phone at home, the robotic voice replied. Sangoma gave the first set of instructions and asked Kotam to repeat them several times. Just for insurance, a simple additional command was added. Then Sangoma said, When I clap my hands, you will close your eyes and count to 50. You will then awaken, remembering nothing. Sangoma left the house and hid in the darkness. Ten minutes later, Nkotam walked out to the mailbox, removed the mail, returned to the house, and turned completely around three times before entering. Sangoma smiled. It was all going perfectly. Inkotum was totally under the Sangoma's control. The pawn was in place. Well, we have quite a mystery on our hands here, don't we? We've got a powerful woman who has to make a difficult decision She's under a lot of pressure at home and at work. And we've got someone sending her strange notes. Someone called a Sangoma. Who has a puppet, someone under their hypnotic control, called Incotum. Lots of moving parts here. Lots of things going on. Well, thank you for joining us for this first episode. And look out next week for the second episode of Adinkra. This is Sarah Armstrong, and these are the stories in my head.